Hi, I'm Gus Wallen, and this is Not An Overnight Success, brought to you by Sean Partners Financial Services. This is a podcast where we sit down with some very successful people from the world of business, entertainment and sport, and talk about their life's journey and what got them to the position that they're in today. In today's episode, we are chatting with celebrity chef and restaurateur, Matt Moran. Matt grew up like a lot of country kids. He didn't like school, he liked playing sport with his friends and hanging out with his brother. And when he came through, chefs were, as he says, the dirty buggers out the back that no one really cared about until we started owning restaurants, of course, and then they had to care because they wanted a good table. Matt's success took a lot of grit and a lot of hard work. In this chat, we talk about his early days in the kitchen and how his life took some interesting paths that led to him becoming a celebrity chef. We speak about his life in TV, his friendship with other celebrity chefs like Gordon Ramsay, as well as the importance of things like hats and Michelin stars for business in the restaurant game. We also talk about Matt's family and his yin-yang style of relationship with his beautiful wife, Sarah. Sitting down with Matt feels like catching up with a mate for a beer. As for all of these podcasts, Sean Partners have generously donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests. We discuss who gets that money in this chat. The executive producer of this podcast is Keisha Pettit, with production assistance from Kelly Stubbs and Brittany Hughes. Let's get into our episode with Matt Moran. Matt Moran, how are you, mate? Mate, I'm great. I'm fantastic. Bad weather, but really happy. It's really good to see you. What did you have for dinner last night? I went down to North Bondi Fish and I had a little bit of sashimi and some fish and chips, to be honest. Beautiful. Um, sat at the bar and yeah, and then went home. Do you like going to restaurants rather than having to deal with stuff yourself? Uh, that's a really interesting question because most people think that me being a, a chef when I'm at home that I don't cook is where it's probably the complete opposite nowadays is where you know I'm probably not cooking the restaurants and I'm cooking more at home. So I love going out, don't get me wrong, but Obviously, that's what I do, but I do love cooking at home. And it's not uncommon for me to be sitting home on a Saturday or Sunday and decide that I want to, you know, bake something, cook something and spend three or four hours in the kitchen by myself. And, and I'm completely at peace. Beautiful. What was your family like uh, growing up for you and where did you grow up? Uh, country originally. So I was born in Tamworth. I uh, lived there until I was four on a sheep farm, cattle farm, and then went from there to Wyong for a year, as in between, I think, and then dairy farm. So we had a dairy farm at Badgeries Creek. And after that, uh, I don't think things went great for the family. We ended up in Seven Hills, Blacktown. Mm. And that's where I sort of did my later years of, of school, actually early years of school too, from I think about fourth class all the way through to year 10. I didn't go any further than year 10. Yeah, so we uh, – and then got an apprenticeship as a chef and then sort of moved to – Moved to the east. <laughs> and you stayed there ever since? Never, well, no, I, I, my first house I bought was in Redfern. So, okay. Yeah, so I kind of tried to get back west, but not quite. <laughs> yeah, and you got dragged back again. Back, yeah, dragged back to the beaches, yeah, which I, I love. Do you have brothers, sisters, mum and dad? At, was it like a normal sort of mum and dad at home? Yeah, pretty much. They separated when I was about 20. I've got a, a brother who's a year old, and unfortunately I lost my sister about 18 months ago. Yeah, mm. so, so she's, uh, yeah, she's gone. She's in your prayers. She's in my prayers. I think yeah. of her every day. Were you a close-knit family growing up? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. I was very close to my brother. You know, he's only 18 months old, 20 months older than me. So, yeah, we kind of were only one year apart at school. And, you know, we were, I grew pretty quickly, so we're pretty much the same size most of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a big brother too, about 18 months yeah. older than me, and we've actually got to the stage where we've got closer as we've got older. Yeah. Actually, I, going through life together 
got us closer together. I think, you know, growing up, we hung out a lot because obviously when we were in the, in the country, you know, it was only him and I. So we sort of, you know, hung out a lot. And then we went to school. We were still great mates. You know, we used to, we had our own friends, but we were still sort of, you know, uh, connected. And then he got into chefing for a little while too and then got out of it. And then, you know, he had his own family and I had my family. And, yeah, we're close. I'd say we're very close. Sport? Did that play a part in your world? Yeah, I was the sporty one. You know, I was the, uh, you know, I played baseball, I played rugby, played league. You know, that's what you did out west. Loved it. In fact, I played rugby and toured New Zealand when I was oh, 14, 15. And I thought I was pretty bloody good, actually. I yeah. thought there, there might have been a career there somewhere and went to New Zealand and realised uh, <laughs> that was never going to happen and uh, never played again and actually took up cooking. So, yeah. That kind of turned out all right too, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You could say that you played for the uh, Wallabies as a chef. Well, you know what? The last night we were there, we had a dinner that we just thought was a dinner and it was the third test the next day, Australia and New Zealand at Eden Park and the Wallabies walked in and we had dinner with them. And I What year this, is this, would you say, roughly? Oh, it's 84 maybe. Okay. And um, I was only four at the time and um, – <laughs> And yeah, I've got a, I've got a great photo of uh, Gary Glenn and Mark Ella, you know, and I think it was Campisi's first game, and Roger yeah. Gould was playing, and yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, and then went and watched the game the next day. Oh, what a treat! It was a very big treat. That was a highlight of New Zealand, actually. The rest of the games, we got absolutely slaughtered. And that can happen. Oh, that happened. <laughs> they were twice the size of us, and uh, yeah, I just realised that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Yeah, a, a, lot, a lot of people have that one moment. They go, "Okay, cha- mm. changing tact here now." Yep, that's <laughs> that's it. I'll become a cook. <laughs> so you became a cook, and yep. how quickly did that happen for you? Were you a food lover? Did you love food? Were you a chubby kid that used to eat all the time? No, or? look, you know, people think the the correlation with the the farm and and farming and and produce was the, the way that I got into it. Or you know this beautiful romantic story about my my family being great cooks and my grandmother and, and all that sort of thing. It wasn't the case. You know we had a very simple diet: protein, three veg. And I, I thought when I started cooking, I just didn't like seafood. But in actual fact, I'd never really eaten it. You know, fish fingers was probably that's about it, right? Um, because you know we just hadn't didn't have access to it. But I didn't like school. I wasn't that academic, which is strange because I've got a son now doing medicine who, you know, is incredibly bright. Wife's chance. That's probably right too. And I've got a daughter who's very street smart, so that's probably where that's she got that from. <laughs> that's genes too. Good combo. Um, but, yeah, I, I didn't really like school and I left before my brother did actually and I said to my father I really wanted to do a trade and I would have done anything, Gus. I would have painted or panel beaded a car and, and I did home economics in year nine and ten for the only reason that I knew that we'd be cooking during the day at school and I'd get something to eat. And there was me and one mate and 20 other girls. So Good ratio. Great ratio. (laughs) And I think I came last in the class. And I did a little bit of work experience in a bakery and thought maybe I might be a baker, which I still love. It's one of my passions, baking. And uh, I knew a little bit about butchery because, you know, being on the farm. When we moved off the farms and we're living in Blacktown, Seven Hills, my father, he made a little bit of money again and bought a little place at Traugo near Goulburn. 500 acres and we used to have sheep there and cattle and we used to go down there every weekend and work so I got to know farming a lot more a lot more about farming then and yeah I, I tried to find I thought I'd compromise and do a bit of butchery and baking and become a chef and and then went out and tried to find a job at the end of year 10 and couldn't get one I was working at Parramatta RSL on weekends 
washing up and really enjoyed what they were doing. And there was a guy on the grill that had been there for four years and the guy on the deep fry had been there for four years and all he wanted to do was get on the grill. And I thought one day, if I could ever just get on that deep fryer, I'd be so happy. But I used to run in and out of the cool room and get the meat for the head chef. And I remember him cracking an egg with one hand thinking, God, I'm in awe of you. You're, you're bloody so good. And then, yeah, couldn't get a job. And, you know, 20 interviews, I reckon. One guy even said to me, he said, look, if the first 10 don't work out, I'll give you a call. I remember there was a place that advertised for a first year in Roseville, a little place called La Bahalene. And little did I know, it was one of the top restaurants in, in probably in the country. And I didn't really want to go there. My father made me because I'd made the appointment. And I got there and I saw a piece of paper and there was all these names with crosses next to it. And uh, I thought, wow, <laughs> I'm going to have to bullshit my way here. <laughs> and I, I, I seriously, you know, I wasn't that articulate really. You know, I wasn't that confident really. And I was so desperate. I, I, he was the, the owner, was the, the, the chef, Michael DeLawrence, who I owe a lot to, probably the most underrated chef ever. Didn't get the sort of credibility that he probably deserved. I remember saying to him during the interview, saying that I didn't have much experience, but if you give me a go, I promise you, you will not be sorry. And because I said that, I think he gave me a bit of a crack and I did a three-day trial and I stuffed up a few times and then on the – Saturday night at the end of he said, you can go to school on Monday and leave. Because I went back to year 11 for a couple of weeks until okay. I got a job. And he said, you can uh, go back and leave. And I'll tell you, it was the happiest day of my life. That's and, so uh, great. Stayed there for four and a half years. I was head chef by the time I was, you know, a third year apprentice. Sleepy little Roseville. Yeah. And back in those days, you know, it was six days a week. We used to work, uh, I can't remember what time we used to start, but I used to get in there early, you know, do 15 hour days, most days. So you're doing, you know, 80, 90 hours a week. And I think I was getting paid 150 bucks. <laughs> to me, that was a lot. Oh, for sure. You know, 50 bucks to get to work, you know, because Sundays I was just gone. I was so tired. And I was only 15 anyway, so mm. I couldn't go out drinking or anything. Yeah, 50 bucks to get to, to work and back, and I banked 100 bucks. That is awesome. Saved five grand the first year and bought myself a car. Well played, sir. Mm. So that's all going along beautifully up there in Roseville. At what stage do you go, you know what? I could actually be more than this or did you have that feeling at some stage or were you just really happy with what you were doing? Look, it was it was very different to the RSL and this is where that light bulb moment happened. You know, when I got to La Belle and it was a fine dining French restaurant, you know, very classic but, you know, with some modern sort of, you know, techniques and stuff, I remember the first few days and on the trial and going home and, and saying to my family, you have no idea what they do with food. They whip up these egg whites and they put them in a bowl and they serve it as this thing called a souffle, you know, and decorations on a plate. They get a strawberry and they cut it and they fan it. It's been my biggest love affair, there's no question, but it was just that light bulb moment is where this is, wow, you know, this is so creative and this is, I fell in love with it within days and I've never stopped it. So, you know, it was one of those things that you, you accidentally fall into but you just become so passionate. And all I wanted to do was learn, because I'm a little bit hyperactive, hang around me enough, you'll you get that. <laughs> but, yeah, fell in love with it and couldn't wait to get to work. And I remember on weekends I'd see my mates, you know, from Blacktown. We'd moved to Castle Hill by then and I'd go and see them on weekends and we'd be sitting around on a Sunday afternoon around the park or whatever and they'd all be going, she said, I don't want to go to work tomorrow. And I used to think to myself for a long time that there was something wrong with me because I couldn't wait to get to work. And, you know, that was obviously to learn something, something different. 
and that's that's what started me on that role. So I never I never took up cooking thinking that I'd be a, a celebrity chef or own a restaurant, write a cookbook. Like there's no way that wasn't even not even a pipe dream because it wasn't even on the agenda. You know, mm. because majority of chefs back in those days didn't own restaurants. There was famous ones overseas. We were the dirty, smelly buggers out the back that no one gave a fuck about, really, mm. until we started owning the restaurants. And then they had to get to know us because they wanted the good tables. Of course. <laughs> so your timing was great in terms of, you know, being someone who loved what they did because so mm. many kids, I've got three teenagers now, and it takes years to work stuff out. They go down heaps of little rabbit holes before yep. they pop their head up where they want to. But also the timing around all of a sudden chefs being celebrities, being mm. on telly and so mm. forth, and mm. you're one of the more successful ones of mm. that. What have you enjoyed about that journey over the last 20-odd years of becoming something that people know now? Yeah, look, you know, I went to a few different places, you know, when I was younger after I left LaBelle and, you know, fine dining and, and high profile. So when I bought my first restaurant when I was only 22 with, with my partner, Peter, who I bought out years ago, it was like a moment of – do I want to make a lot of money and be successful? It wasn't really. I just didn't want to be told what to do anymore. Yeah. And it just kind of it just kept falling into things, you know, and then another restaurant and then another restaurant and then another restaurant. And then it was really probably 20 years ago, around 2003, I think, I did a documentary style thing called Heat in the Kitchen. And we had a publicist who was working for us at Aria in the early days. And uh, she asked me to go and audition for this TV show called My Restaurant Rules. And I was like, oh, that's, that's a stupid fucking idea. That'll never work. You know, how can you give people that don't own restaurants and aren't chefs a, a chance to win a restaurant? They go broke in, in days, you know. And I went in and auditioned, which I didn't really want to be there, and I just spoke my mind. And that, that's when they went, oh, we want you. Yeah. <laughs> and then that started that sort of that career, you know, which obviously went on. I think it's about 12 different shows now I've done over, over the years. Some of them, you know, I helped develop too, so – Got a couple of things happening again, which yeah. is nice. But yeah, it was just one of those things. I didn't really set out to sort of be that. It just sort of happened and fell into it. And I suppose the great thing about that is that I've always had a career with restaurants and that's always been my, my main love. So TV was always a bit of a, and media was always a bit of a byproduct, mm. which meant that if I didn't want to do it, I'd say no. And I think with anything in life, you say no enough, they want you to do it more. <laughs> so I've been lucky in that in that way is where, you know, I've turned a lot of things down and, and ones that I've kind of really passionate about or I really like, they're the ones that I've done or to get experience in, in certain things. So, yeah, I'm not a TV chef as such as where that's my only thing. So, you know, if someone told me tomorrow that my TV career is over for the rest of my life, great, I go back to work, you know, yeah, do yeah. what I do. If someone told me my restaurant career and empire's gone, I'd be fucked. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do. Yeah. You know, that's my life. You know, that's always been a priority. Yeah. TV's the balance and gives you a yeah. little bit of fun and get to meet some cool people and yeah. do some fun things, but that's yeah. not the core of your nah. being. No. Nah. And, you know, there's, you know, a lot of my mates and, you know, it's quite well known that Gordon's one of my best friends and has been for nearly 30 years. And, you know, I remember when he first started his first TV show and I was like, oh, mate, why would you want to do that? <laughs> He's done okay. He's done all right. <laughs> yeah. We were talking to Lane Beachley through this um, podcast series and just like you and people that are wanted, lots of options come your way. So you have to decide on what to do because there's not only 24 hours in a day. So she uh, came up with this. Lane fits in a lot. You know, Lane, well, Kirk's one of my best friends. I used to own a restaurant with Kirk. Yes. And uh, he was one of my best, well, you know, I had four best men. He was one of them. So I know, I know Lane very well. And she can fit a lot in a day. <laughs> she sure can. But she's done it with the, the fuck yeah or the hell no. So yep. 
I'm yep. fuck yeah, I'm in on everything. Yep. The hell no, I never think of you again. Yep. And that way at least she has no sort of grey area where she's like, oh, maybe I should have or I shouldn't have. Mm. And since chatting to her about that, that's mm. how I'm trying to lead my life. And mm. it has cleared the decks quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's a very, very special lady. And uh, she's very competitive. <laughs> <laughs> Strange yes. enough. I've seen my daughter and her, you know, being away on trips and playing mind games or cards and, and you know, you let little girls win sometimes, but not Lane. Lane's no. like, it's no fucking way I'm going to let you beat me. Mate, I've dealt with a lot of sportsmen as well. I played through the ashes with Mark Taylor and Brad Haddon. We used yeah. to play tennis on our yeah. before the test match start, especially with the day-night test you had all morning. Mm. So I'm just playing it back to the guy that's not quite as good, right? Let's get some rallies going. Mm. And the looks that you get from these blokes are like, are you fucking serious? Mm. Mm. Bury these people yep. now. And I'm yep. like, that's sort of not – I haven't got that in me. Yeah. I, have, I, you, have you got that I killer to, instinct? I used, to get into, I used to get into trouble at home when I used to play Monopoly with the kids and, you know, they would be thinking that they're going to be paying me back because they've gone bankrupt for the rest of their lives and they'd both be in tears and, and I'd just keep trying to bury them. <laughs> it's a good lesson in life. <laughs> what does be, your wife think of to this? Be, to be bankrupt. Oh, she hated it. God, she hated it. <laughs> Tell me about your wife. And where, uh, did you, where did you meet? Did you fall in love straight away? Did you fall in love and she didn't or vice versa? Oh, yeah. Look, you know, we, we met in a restaurant, strangely enough, and pretty special person. So, yeah, I was, I was gone and, you know, it took a while to – convince her <laughs> she's a very smart individual and you know a very good heart and good person yeah very left you know and many people have said to me over the years you know she's the bleeding heart and i'm the capitalist pig but that's not true at all you know as sarah once said to me you wanted to be a big corporate lawyer or if you wanted me to be a big corporate lawyer and earn a lot of money you know we wouldn't work but if i was more like her we wouldn't have a house to live in <laughs> yeah good Beautiful. balance yeah definitely just quickly interrupting the episode to say a very big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, and that is Shore and Partners Financial Services. Shore and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices across Australia, Shore and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates, and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shoreandpartners.com.au. That's S H A W for sure. Shore and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. And let's get back into the episode. It's quite a few sacrifices, I imagine, for the family when you are out there building mm. the empire. Not now, I imagine you can mm. run things how you want to run them, but mm. Mm. your partner turns into a true partner in life, not just a yeah, not look, just a know, homemaker. Harry's Harry's twenty and Amelia is sixteen, and you know, obviously, twenty years ago was when I was really building the, the career. And you know, spent a lot of time at uh, at work. I look back at that, and you know, I, I I tried to take as much time off as I possibly could. You know, I think as it went on, and by the time they were sort of you know at school, and and probably Harry was in high school, made a very conscious effort to make sure that I had holidays every year, and and uh, you know, would go away skiing and big skiing family, and would go to Europe and do things like that, and the farm obviously, and and Easter's, you know, had every Easter at the farm for God knows how long. And, yeah, it's kind of strange now that Harry lives in Melbourne. He's down there doing uni and, you know, he's not here in Sydney anymore and you kind of miss him like bloody crazy. Yeah. I, I find that too, doing the breakfast radio for 11 years. It was very much those kids' formative years. And Vic said, you know, you were here but you were just so tired, you yeah, know. You were just yeah. – you weren't present. Yeah, yeah. And I'm trying really hard now to get a better balance. Yeah. And 
asking the kids if they understand why that was the case. And as they get a bit older, they they get it because yeah. they know it's coming from the right place. And, you know, I, I talk to Harry and Amelia a, a lot, not that I, I would want to influence them in what I did, but, you know, I lost a lot of my – well, I lost my teenage years, you know, because I was working six days a week and, you know, a lot of going out. And I worked every Friday, Saturday night for 25 years. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of weekends away and all that sort of stuff. So I, I sort of – I sort of sacrificed that to get where I where I am now, and you know they often talk about that now. It's like, wow, Dad, you're like you didn't really, you know, you didn't do anything like what we're doing, and I'm at that stage now is where I probably can take it a bit easier if I want to, mm. and if I want to take a day off, I I can. If I want to go, I had father daughter breakfast the other day with Amelia, and, and I can do those sort of things and, and not feel stressed about it because I don't really answer to anyone. Yeah, nice place to be. Well, you said that. You didn't want to no. have a boss, so you can be your own boss. <laughs> I answered to my daughter probably more than anyone these days. <laughs> Believe me, I've got a couple of those. I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. Was that – I spoke to Kirk actually and I oh, said yeah. what was his sort of moment where he, he knew that he had made it. And mm. I said was it, you know, in front of 100-odd thousand at Wembley and so mm. forth. And I won't give the answer away because mm. I'd love you to hear the podcast. But mm. what was the moment, if there was one – because you had the light bulb to say, I'm going to be this. Mm. Was there a moment where you just looked and went, hey, I've made it? Mm. Or you felt satisfied with everything and you were just like, this is really cool, this life I've created? Oh, look, probably hasn't happened yet, Gus. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> you know, I remember, you know, being young and getting that first letter to being uh, invited to the Good Food Gut Awards and knowing that we're going to get a hat. And, you know, I was only 23 or something at the time. I thought, wow, that was pretty cool. But, you know, business when you're 22 and you don't really know what you're doing is pretty tough too. You know, we nearly went broke a few times and didn't really understand the business side of it. And, you know, it was really important to, to surround myself with people that knew a lot more about business than what I did, which obviously I'm a sponge. So, you know, I learned off them. And business side obviously is the biggest part of my business now because, you know, you, you've got to be on figures and, and margins and, and all that other bits and pieces, particularly as you get bigger. Yeah. Uh, look, this, I'm sure there's been different stages of my life was where I've thought, wow, you know, that's great. You know, I've done that and whatever. But I don't think there's been one individual moment that I've just stood back and went, oh, you know, it's, it's done because I'm still doing things. You know, my daughter once said to me years ago, you know, are you going to retire at 65? And I said, Mim, I probably won't because I'm involved in restaurants and property and, and farms and whatever else. I'll probably never retire. And she looked really disappointed. And I said, why? She said, well, you know, this is when she was young and she's only probably 10 or 11. She said, well, I want to take over Empire and, and do all the things right that you're doing wrong. <laughs> 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 and I, when she said disappointed, when she looked disappointed, I thought, God, is that because she doesn't want me, she wants me to take some time off and not work anymore? But it was yeah, the, be with her. It's complete opposite. She just wanted to, yeah. Well, I don't think she's going down that line, but you, you never know. I'd, yeah. I'd love for someone to come in on it, but- the difference is obviously I'm, I'm a cook and I started cooking and if a, a chef walks out, I can sort of, you know, still get on it. Well, I don't really, but I could. Get on I the tools? To. Yeah, of course I could, yeah. What's the uh, meal that you could absolutely, if we said, righto, mate, open up that door, the kitchen's there. Mm. I haven't had brekkie today. You might be surprised. Do you whip me up something? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I could definitely whip you up something. Because I have fine dining restaurants and, and restaurants, different, you know, different sorts of restaurants, people think that that's the sort of food that I eat all the time. It's not uncommon for me on a Sunday night to have a boiled egg on toast. I love a good roast chook. You know, I've been spending a lot of time down in the country and get a good chook and there's nothing better. A bit of sourdough on the bottom and garlic all over it and heaps of butter and put the chook on it, fries it underneath and, you know, you got garlic bread on, under your chook. 
Oh, that's a nice that's little yeah. touch. Colin Fastnich, uh, I got that idea from him many, many years ago. Another madman. Another. Oh, he's a bit madder than me. He's actually, I just saw that he's about to do um, Kitchen Nightmares, which is one of GR's yeah. shows, Gordon's shows. Which is, he'd be good on that, actually. He would be, yeah. And then on the other hand, on a winter's day, on a Saturday or Sunday, it's not uncommon for me to make some sausages and make a, a castle, you know, confit some duck leg and make a traditional classic castle, which would take me four or five hours, mm. or, you know, or, or bake a tart or, or something like that. You know, I crave different things at different times. And I'll be honest, you know, when I wake up in the morning, you know, one of the first things I, I do think of is what I'm going to eat today. Yeah. And what do I feel like and what do I crave? And, and you know, it's funny because my family think I'm mad, but it's it's just a fact of life. You know, I, I love food. I love cooking. You know, I like doing different things too. And I'll challenge myself sometimes at home too. Of course. Yeah. My mum says all disagreements can be dealt with with a nice cup of tea. Yeah, right. It's got to be in a pot. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. A bit old Englishy that way. Yeah. Are you a cup of tea and a pot man or are you more of a coffee man or? Mate, I, I love coffee, but I do a show, Great Australian Bake Off, yeah, which, is, great. which is on air at the moment. We've, we've, love the UK one as well. Yeah, yeah. I walked we, in on my son and daughter the other day and on the laptop they were watching your show. Oh, were they? They're oh, going, cool. oh, we did, didn't know there was an Aussie one because they're 22 now. Yeah, right. They're both very cool, in inverted commas, people. Yeah, yeah. And they're watching the UK and the Aussie version of yeah, the Bake Off. Well, on that, What's going on? on that show, we have Kate Corner and I'm obviously with Maggie Beer, the gorgeous Maggie, and the two girls will be sitting there talking about the contestants and what's happening next. And we always have a pot of tea. So, you know, I do love a good pot, of, a, a good tea at home. It would never be a pot. It's generally just a tea bag because it's yeah. just quick yeah. you know, out of the zip tea bag in there. But quite often on a weekend, I'll have a, have a cup of tea and I don't mind it. I used to have a lot of tea with my grandmother when I was growing up. But, it's, you know, going back to Bake Off, it's quite funny. Your kids are watching it. So I said to my son, because it only started the other, other month, and I said to Harry, I said, oh, yeah, I said, you watched Bake Off last night? Oh, yeah, Dad, yeah, yeah. I said, well, so what do you like about it? <laughs> and he said, oh, how good's the judging? <laughs> And I said, looked at it. And I said, so, mate, um, what about the baking? Oh, the baking's, oh, God, it's good. And I said, well, what part did you like the most about the baking? He goes, oh, the baked items, you know? Yeah, how good are the baked items? They look delicious. And then he sent me a video of the next week of, you know, 10 of his mates sitting down with it on TV. And, you know, as he said, it was on for three seconds and we sent it to <laughs> you and photo. then turned it off. Yeah. <laughs> well, I say to my kids every afternoon, what did you like on the show this afternoon? They're like, yeah, the, the traffic bits. Yeah, like when you're through to the traffic, I was like, mm, "When was the last time you actually listened?" And I suppose that's normal. Yeah, you did speak a little bit ago about getting a hat. Oh yeah. Now, for people that don't understand it, listening to the podcast, yep. Yep. that is your. Oh, that that's you know going back um, thirty years, which obviously it was. In fact, nearly exactly 30 years ago. It's uh, an award. So you have one, two or three, and it was Paddington that I had one. And, and look, it's still important, but, you know, back in those days, you know, there weren't the outlets, you know, all the different awards that there are now, and it was really the only one. And uh, it meant a hell of a lot. And it really – it's back in the Leo Schofield days where it could make a restaurant or break a restaurant. Okay. Look, it's still nice to receive those accolades, but for business it's not as important as social media, word of mouth. That's the stuff that goes viral these days. And how do you get one? Like do you know that someone's coming in – to eat a meal, which means that you've just got to be on point for that meal, or do they come in as a secret? Like, yeah, that must be just they don't. It's going to make or break your business. They book under a different name, but after being in it for so long, you know, you know who they are. 
Okay. Um, and look, it's still very important for the restaurant and for the staff because, you know, they're striving. And, and that's one of the first TV shows I did. It was a documentary called Heat in the Kitchen where we lost a hat in, in a venue. We had two of them. And, so you, uh, they can take them off you? Yeah, they can take them off you, yeah. yeah. Oh. So the next year they took one off me. And it was a really good learning curve for me and it sort of stopped me in my tracks because it really hurt. I, I still don't agree with it, but it was possibly the best thing that ever happened to me because it really made me look at what I was – and I think it made me a better person, made me much more humble. And we had a, a film crew follow us for a year to see whether we'd get it back or not. When we lost it, it probably didn't do that much to business, but when we got it back, it did. And uh, we got it back the following year. So it was, a good, it was a good story in the end. Yeah. But I didn't want it. They came to us and asked us if they, we could follow you, and I was like, no, nah, no, nah, I don't want to be any part of that. I'd love that. And I, I actually – was talking about giving it all up, which is ridiculous because, you know, as if. You got success quite young though, so I suppose your mind was still a little bit, fuck you. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. But you know what? (laughs) I I sat there and thought about it and I thought, you know what? If these guys do follow us and they know and they see the the effort, the work and the change that I'll do in that year, it makes the critics look like idiots. You know, so I thought, fuck them. Yeah, follow me. <laughs> Turn it around. <laughs> Turn it around. And, you know, it was a good good story in the end. And uh, we've never lost one ever since, you know, at, at that venue. So Michelin stars, is, yeah, is, that, is it, that another way? Yeah. I suppose the hats in Australia are marked on what a Michelin star is. So, yeah. So one, one star, two star, three stars. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think I went to one – Went to Royan or somewhere like that in France to get oh, yeah. the grog for my wedding. Yeah. My wife and I got married in England. She's English. Yeah. And the bloke who took me over in this van and we just piled the van up with, you know, all the cheap grog, he said, we're going to a Michelin star restaurant tonight. Mm. And I think I was meant to know what that meant, mm. but I didn't. But I remember having some breadcrumbs and stuff in front of me and this little mini Hoover, but it wasn't a Hoover because you had to physically move it, but it was beautiful and, and mm. silver and, and mm. And, and it, clean the table. Clean the table up with yeah. it. And my and the wine didn't stay on the table. It was at another table. Mm, and mm. There was one guy just watching, yeah. uh, needing a top. I thought, this is a way to eat. Yeah, that's refined fine dining. There's a, a big place for those restaurants in, in the world because, you know, I've travelled a lot and eaten in a lot of three-star Michelin restaurants. And, you know, it's an experience that you uh, you remember for the rest of your life. I remember the first one I went to. It was in in Paris. It was Alan Ducasse, who's one of the most famous chefs in the world, and it was three Michelin star, and I was with my girlfriend at the time, who was actually Sarah. And well, you didn't want to waste it on someone you weren't <laughs> going to spend the rest of your life before with. I was Before I was married. And <laughs> I couldn't really afford it. And it was quite funny because when we left, you know, the, the food was in, in – I still remember we had a long scene for an entree, and I think it, it, it actually back then, you know, 20-odd years ago, it was about 170 bucks. So we spent $1,000 then – all right, $500 a head then, and that was 25 years so ago. what's that worth now? Oh, God knows. And uh, <laughs> I remember at the end of it, the, the chef gave me a signed menu and a, and a loaf of bread and an ashtray. You know, they were obviously smoking restaurants back in those yeah. days. And I remember walking out and someone saying, or Sarah saying, you know, you know, that was really nice. And I said, oh, come on, you know what happened? And I said, he gave me the ashtray because he knew I was going to steal one. He gave me a menu because he knows I'm a cook. And he gave us a loaf of bread because he knows I can't afford dinner. <laughs> yeah, for the next three days. <laughs> Still got the ashtray, I think. That is nice, though. Yeah. What's a trait that you love about yourself? Oh, oh God, there's a lot that I don't. Well, that's the next question. Do, do you want to go don't first? I'm a, I'm a Torian and, okay. you know, I charge into things. I'm, I'm stubborn as hell. I can be wrong, and that's probably the good thing. And I, I'd like to surround myself with people that will actually tell me that I'm wrong. And, you know, I think that's really important. I think when I was younger, I was very 
pig-headed and bull-headed how I, I wanted to run my kitchen and my business, and that's very different, and, and that's why I've got incredible staff that have been with me for a long time, some some 20 years. Uh, Laura, who's out there, well, I think she might be out there, 15 years, and I've had multiple of staff, you know, you know, 19 years, 17 years, 18 years, mm. and, and I think that's because you kind of empower them and, and make them feel as though they have a voice. There's no dictatorship in my, you know, restaurants or, or companies. It's always being very collaborative. So, you know, listening and learning is really important. You don't know everything. I remember uh, when I was doing MasterChef for those years and there was a, a young girl, Series 1, who I became a bit of a mentor, who's a very dear friend, and I won't say who it is. She's very well known. She said to me, I remember when she came out of MasterChef, she said to me, you know, so how long is it going to take me to learn everything? And I just looked at her, and at that stage, I'd been doing it for 25 years. I said, well, I've been doing it for 25 years, and I've got no idea <laughs> on the tip of the iceberg because, you know, cooking is, is um, knowledge, and knowledge takes time. So, and it's always changing and evolving, and you're always learning something. And that's the great thing I love about the industry and I love about myself is that I'm always forcing myself to learn as much as I possibly can. Mm. So I don't know everything. You know, I often get told that, you know, a great trait is – I don't give a fuck what people think about me personally, you know, because you get a lot of criticism. You know, I, I've been copying it at the country pub that I bought for for not reopening it and closing it. One was COVID and one I was trying to get a DA and whatever from the locals belting me and they belted me and, you know, it was pretty thick-skinned. And what? And you said the bad trait, you said you're a bull at the gate. Is there anything else you want to <laughs> add to that? I'm stubborn, you know. I'm a bull, you know. Um, <laughs> I used to be very bad-tempered, you know, in a kitchen growing up. But, you know, I think having kids calms you down a lot. You know, firm but fair, I suppose. But these days I'm soft and mushy. I'm hopeless. (laughs) No, that's great. That's good. (laughs) There's a question coming from one of our producers, a Mm. lady producer, Mm. saying that you look like Kelly Slater. Has anyone said that to you? I've never heard that one, but I'll take that one. Wouldn't you take it to Uh, the bank? Jesus. You know, he's my age too. And still winning world championships. <laughs> How good was that? And, oh, and being man. emotional about it. And being emotional. You know, you get softer as you get older, I think, Gus. Definitely. You know? I'm, I, definitely I'm definitely more left than I used to be. There's no question. We've become more human. Yeah, you know? I think so. So many people, and I cry a lot. I've cried here a couple of times already yeah. listening to you. <laughs> I'm sort of trying to stop apologising for that now. No, mate. Because Aussies, well, humans, I think, we tend to sort of, sorry, you know, yeah, as you're doing it, it's yeah. like, no, you're being human and that's okay. Yeah. I've heard Kevin Costner a few times. I don't know where that came into it, but, you know. Not, well, you'll not, take not, him too. I'll take, I'll take Kelly Slater, thank you. Yeah, take <laughs> I'm going I'm to put that on my Instagram. Slater <laughs> slash Costner. Yeah. To, yeah that's yeah, a good result. Yeah, that's, that's the best I've heard. We've got um, the fast five questions that end up yep. our podcast. So just shoot your favourite holiday destination. GR, Gordon took me to Iceland for my 50th. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm going back again this year with him. Just pretty, the two of you? No, there's a couple of us because he, he's got to fill his jet. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it more um, easier um, money And wise. fishing, um, you know, fishing for salmon in, in those streams up in Iceland is pretty bloody special. Oh. And I'll never – thanks, buddy. <laughs> and uh, we're going to try and do it every year for the rest of our lives, I think. What's, look, he, what's he like as a bloke? Gordon Ramsay. Oh, look, you know, he's, he's one of the most generous, thoughtful people you'd ever meet. Whenever I speak to GR, it's always, you know, how's, how's everyone? And he's, the persona you see is very different. He can be pretty soft too. You know? That's good. Yeah. So he's um, a good bloke, plays a role well. Plays a role well. 
We're very competitive, by the way. We all put in 20 quid to who, whoever got the biggest fish. I got the biggest and the first. <laughs> I was very happy to take his 20 quid, even though he paid for the private jet and everything. <laughs> <laughs> He's working with Australians now. What about the farm, your farm? The farm is, is really important to me. You know, I love, I love the farm. I've been spending more time there in the last two years than I ever have. It is no question my father was living on it and now he's moved into Bathurst and, you know, I'm doing some more work to the house and renovating it and I've been taking friends. Every time I take a friend there, they go, wow, you know, you, you're a different person. And um, You're a different person when you're there? Yeah. It's you my feel happy- yourself it, yeah. de- decompressing as I, you drive I, out I, I tell you that the minute, the first two hours of driving out there is on the phone doing business and then the next hour is listening to podcasts and the minute I drive into that gate – I'm a different person. It is my happy place and there's no question about it. You know, I can sit there in the paddock and look at my cows for half an hour <laughs> and, you know, it's just – I just like looking at them, you know, and I like talking to my farm manager and, and learning because it's something I want to do more of. Even though I've been going to the farm my whole life and prior to that, but there's so much I've got to learn and so much more that I want to do and create there and, and do different things and there's no question, you know, and that's obviously why I bought the local pub up there too so I can, you know, have something to do when I'm, <laughs> when I'm not on the farm. Yeah. But, yeah, there's no question it's my, my happy place. You know, I've got a veggie garden up there and I'm going to renovate the house up there and you'll have to come up. I'd love you know? to, mate. That'd be great. Mate, that's an inv- invite because it, it's you. a special place. There's no question. It sounds beautiful. I've got a mate that's got a place outside of Mangrove Mountain just an hour and a half out of Sydney mm. and we were there this weekend and mm. – Oh, I just sat there one afternoon with a little glass of scotch mm. and just looked at him and said, mate, you've created something pretty cool here. Mm. And he's like just nodding along. It's just sort of happened. He's mm. 53 now and it's just mm. all of a sudden it's just a really lovely place to go and he feels very comfy there. Yeah, and the, the pub in Rockley, which is only six and a half minutes from the farm, you know, I used to go on Rockley and Rockley used to have 3,000 people in the gold rush and now it's got 200 and the, the, it's a beautiful town because it comes down into a valley and all the houses are on the hills that look down over into into the creek there or river. Nothing's there anymore. It's only the pub. And the whole idea was to buy the pub and, and create a town, mm-hmm. you know, and I see so many of these rural towns that have been created. You know, Millthorpe is a great example. It's where my mate bought a, a restaurant there 20 years ago and now Millthorpe is thriving. You can't buy a house there for under a million bucks. And, you know, there's cafes and there's, you know, accommodation and he's got a function venue there and he owns most of the town, I think. It's a, desti- um, it's a destination. It is a destination. And that's what I want Rockley to be. I want to be able to bake and build a bakery and I'll do a bit of wholesale into Bathurst and Orange, which I can, so it gives you a bit of cash flow. But then also open a general store and, and you know, all the things I'm using in the restaurant and, and put in the general store. And, and I've promised the, the locals and I've made it very clear many times that the general store will be a – a place where, you know, they're not going to get ripped off and they can buy milk and groceries, probably not the sourdough, for the same price they can in Bathurst. So it's really a service rather than, mm. you know, a money-making thing for me. I'll make money in the restaurant and the accommodation and all, and the beer sales. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, majority of the locals, in fact, 90% of the locals love the idea. They're like, fantastic, you're going to bring the town back to life. And, you know, on a Sunday morning, because a lot of people from Sydney go out there too and come down to the bakery, grab something to eat and, you know, have a beer in the afternoon and go back up to the house and whatever. And to me, that's just... Heaven. Of course. I can come in from the farm, have a couple of beers and go back out of the farm. How good. Favourite quote? Favourite quote, do something that you love in life and you never have to work another day. Yeah, I like that. Mm. like that. Favourite movie? Oh, look, 
Always twos, but I'd have to say Godfather 2. Okay. But I love Terminator 2, Superman 2. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't know why. You don't mind a sequel. I don't mind a sequel. But they're always better. Rocky 2 was, you know, Rocky 1 was fantastic. Rocky 2 was great. Mm. You know, Terminator was good. Terminator 2 was fantastic. Yeah. Godfather was, 1 was good. 2 was amazing, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you might be onto something. Yeah, here. three wasn't that great. <laughs> you got to have to watch it anyway. <laughs> Are you a reader? What's your favourite book? No, no, no. That's the other side of the family. Okay, um, all the kids and Sarah they read. So Sarah how writes, do you obviously. how do you chill? I will cook. Look, that's the lie. I, I'm known. No one can beat me in trivia. And I'm very good with numbers. Is that right? Yeah, very good with numbers. It is a challenge. And I can add up like a like a calculator. But I have trivia. Like if you tell me a, a great classic Aussie rock song, I'll probably tell you when it came out. Okay. And I just, K-San, 78. <laughs> well, anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but I did that recently with with two ladies and, and they said three and I got all three of them right and they're just like, how the fuck did you know that? Anyway. Yeah. Just that useless info we have Useless in information. So <laughs> I obviously get that by reading. So, you know, rather than sort of reading a, a novel, you know, I'm just always constantly, if I want to know something, I'm just on it straight away. So, yeah. you know, and, and I do read a little bit about politics and all that sort of stuff and obviously if I, I'm thinking about going somewhere I'm, I'm yeah Google's been the best thing for me oh yeah and uh, Spellcheck has been the best two things for me on the computer <laughs> that's good to know <laughs> and your favourite charity I know you've got lots and so forth oh, but we've look, got $10,000 yeah. from Sean Partners to give to you know a charity of your choice and we're doing that with every yeah, right. episode of this I'm you know heavily involved in, in restaurants produce and farming and uh, I helped start a charity called Thankful for Farmers and it's it's not just about when drought times it's about you know mental health and I know how hard farmers work obviously seeing it in my own life and that's why I created Paddock to Plate because it wasn't really me it was look it was fantastic I to travel around Australia and meet all these incredible producers that work so bloody hard and tell their story so yeah thankful for farmers is my go and you know I'm involved with them a lot at the moment because of what we're calling the gap year go and pick because we've had you know, all these farmers with no help from overseas workers. Mm. And, and I've had that same, obviously, in my industry too. So we're trying to get kids that are leaving school to go and have a gap year, go and pick and earn some money. Mm. You know, if it's for a month or six weeks or two months and, and earn some good coin and, and help the farmers out at the same time. Good on you, mate. Well, thank you so much for being a part Pleasure, of buddy. the podcast. It's really- uh, I could sit here and talk for hours, you know. I know. I know <laughs> I could do the same exactly, but you've got to go and cr- keep creating your empire. Now, I've got a food tasting at, uh, at Opera Bar. So yeah, oh, it's, your poor it's, thing. We, Are you going to be okay? Uh, it's, it's these this time <laughs> of year. So we have four of them a, a year when the change of seasons. And this week and last week, I've just been going to different venues and having food tastings and posting it. And yeah, everyone thinks my life is pretty bloody cool. And yeah, it bloody is. I think it is. You created <laughs> that. You deserve it, mate. Pleasure, Thank mate. you. Pleasure. Cheers. That was Matt Moran, and what I loved about my chat with Matt was just the fact that we got along so well and the fact that he's just so down to earth, but he's just one of those blokes when you look at his life and you think, God, you've done so much, and you know, you're quite fancy in certain ways, but you're just such a knockabout at the other, and really the sense of, I'm just going to do it the way that I want to do it. That's the absolute key in terms of me for Matt, and I love the fact that he's so successful. He makes a pretty decent cheese on toast as well. Coming up in the next episode is a woman who has one of the greatest visions for business of anyone that I've ever come across, Kate Morris. She founded Adore Beauty, Australia's first online cosmetics retailer in 1999, when online shopping was hardly a thing. Kate has gone from being the girl who got fired from not one but two jobs to understanding the mentality of female consumers 
and taking it to another level. A big thank you to Shaw and Partners Financial Services who have generously supported this podcast and also donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests to thank them for their time. Shaw and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices around Australia, Shaw and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shaw and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth.